Kia ora, and welcome to the Happy Revolution podcast. I'm Mika, and I'm here with my co-host, Rain. We chat to academics, activists, pastors, and public figures about their areas of expertise and what brings them home. Today, we're talking to Dr. Shamsi L. Ojani. Shamsi is a senior lecturer at Victoria University in the School of Social and Cultural Studies. He's a father, a prolific author, and one of the editors of the academic journal Counterfeit. Shamsi specializes in classical and contemporary sociological theory, political sociology, and the sociology of development and globalization. He is here to talk about Marxism, Christianity, life beyond capitalism, the rise of the far right, and what hope looks like in all of that. Just so you know, this podcast contains some strong language. Also, if you're unfamiliar with some of the terms and theories which Shamsi refers to, please see the show notes for definitions. How long have you been lecturing sociology at Vic Uni? So it'd be about 20 years now. Wow. Yeah, I think I came 2003, middle of 2003. Yes, yeah, so it's a long time. It's his whole life. Mika's entire uh, life. To early 2002. Wow. That's yeah. crazy. Nuts, eh? yeah. I mean, I always think with that, like even if the university collapsed and I lost my job, it's like, oh my goodness, I've had so many years of doing the stuff that I love. I'm mm. so lucky. You know, it's so stimulating. Like I've had 20 years here and then, you know, since I was 18, I've been in the university environment. Yeah. You, you enjoy it. Yeah, I really love it. I mean, sometimes it gets me down like every job does, you know, it's bureaucratic stuff and... Mm. Marking can be a bit of a grind, but, um, you know, shit, you're just reading stuff you want to read and engaging with really interesting young people and, you know, and particularly the postgrad stuff, you mm-hmm. know, the honours stuff, the masters, the PhD stuff, it's just, it's fantastic. And then you've got your research, which is just whatever you want to, mm. you know, whatever you want to do. It's incredible. Really. And when I get too moany, I try and remind myself just how lucky I am. The field of sociology is heavily shaped by Karl Marx. Can you tell us a bit about Marx's influence in the field of sociology? Marx engaged with sociology. He didn't really like the sociologists, the people who were emerging as sociologists. He thought it was a kind of a bourgeois science. And so it's kind of funny that he's been adopted by sociology more than any discipline mm. in a way. And he, you know, he wasn't completely originally. I mean, he only became one of our founding fathers much, much later when Torcott Parsons in the 1930s tried to set out this idea of a sociological canon. Marx didn't make it. It was, you know, it was Durkheim and Weber, they made it, but it was Alfred Marshall and Vilfredo Pareto, an Italian thinker. Marx didn't make it. But, you know, it was really hard not to engage with Marxism, I reckon, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. By 1914, Eric Hobsbawm says, you know, Marxism was kind of part of the general culture in Europe. You know, it had made a real impact. It was starting to conquer socialism so it was kind of hard to steer away from it. And so in the first Journal of Sociology, the American Journal of Sociology, in the first 10 years of life of that journal, I think it was established in 1895, they're discussing Marxism. You know, people had to. Weber is discussing Marxism. Durkheim hadn't read much, but he's discussing Marxism because it is actually becoming a real movement. It's having an impact. It's challenging and it's intellectually big and you kind of got to encounter it. 
and you know the stuff that Marx is doing is is totally it is in the field of sociology, right? Thinking about reflecting on modernity and its institutions and social change and social conflict. I mean, you, yeah, you've got to got to encounter Marx and Marxism if you're a sociologist, and I'm glad that's still true. Even though Marxism as a movement has kind of fallen to bits in my lifetime. I'm glad that it's still important and it still seems important to students. In every subject, Marx is always, he has an opinion about everything, he's written about everything. So yeah. He covers so up much. so often. <clears throat> Anthropology and sociology are definitely the biggest ones. And I think, you know, it's partly about that, you know, Marxism's victory in, because so, socialism was so profoundly diverse in the 19th century. And, and certainly by the 20s, 30s, Marxism had kind of conquered socialism in a certain way and it had become probably the dominant mm. strand of socialism. Before that, you know, real plural, you know, like didn't make much headway in France, for example, not super amount of headway in Spain until, you know, the 20s, the 30s. But partly it is kind of a victory of ideas, Um you know, that it's just a little bit better than its competitors in lots of ways. And Perry Anderson has this really nice phrase. He talks about the scope and the moral force of Marxism, you know, this huge explanatory scope. You can kind of interpret all of world history. You can think about society and understand how it works using Marxism. And it's got all this moral force, you know, it's a utopian project. It's this view of progressive social transformation or um, emancipation, mm. a kind of an end of history, you know, an end of conflict, an end of poverty, a kind of a unification of human beings. So it's, it's big and it, it's at that level that it does actually compete with the world religions, I think, in terms of mm. that scope and that moral force. So I think it's, it's not just contingent, it's not an accident that it's become something that you kind of have to encounter at universities, I think it's because it's good and strong and profound and and also complex, you know. Mm. I just think of just how much rich history Christian thought has and Marxism has such a rich history as well. Just drew people to it and people tried to work out all of these problems and, and widen the scope of Marxism, you know, to think about what Marxism says about art or, or you know, what Marxism says about the mass media or the environment, you know. It's just incredibly generative set of ideas. Does Marx claim that communism is the final form the way that Fukuyama claims that for liberalism? Yeah, I think he does see it as a an end of history. I mean, it doesn't mean that it that he imagined that things would become static mm. and perfect and final, or that there'd be no conflict, no transformation. But he thought that the solving the problem of class, getting rid of class, would kind of solve most of humanity's big issues or at least give us a framework to, to solve any issues we came came across through. So I think, yeah, and he does talk at one point about, you know, all all that would be left with communism would be the administration of things, you know. You don't have any big fights or clashes or 
anything, you just kind of administer things, which a lot of people would say is really naive and utopian in a bad sense. But, mm. but I think he did see it as really solving the riddle of history, solving the big problems that humanity encounters and has to deal with. But yet, against that idea that it's closed and static and mm. final and maybe dangerously totalitarian, I don't think we'd find that in Marx. And also you've got to remember, eh, that, you know, he's trying to convince people as well that he's he can sometimes seem more naive or more simplistic or more deterministic, but a lot of it is rhetorical, right? He's wanting to win people to his position. And he acknowledges, say, in his his understanding of, of how history develops when he's writing in his letters to people. He's going, look, we gave this impression that history develops in this linear way, but it's kind of bullshit, it doesn't. You know, we kind of overemphasise that for polemical effect. we kind of always got to remember with him, I mean, any political figure, eh, they're trying to win people, not just, you know, talk about the nitty-gritty of what actually exists and all its complexity. He's a, he's a, you know, he's a polemicist uh, and a militant, first and foremost, but also an intellectual. But he always knows it's more complex than he lets on, you know. And this is the same with the base superstructure metaphor, right, and this charge of determinism about Marxism. Well, he knew it wasn't as simple as that, that it's not just everything, everything that happens is an efflux or a reflex of the kind of contradictions between the forces and relations of production or class. He knows it's much more complicated than this, but it's, you know... Marxism's also a system of ideas that equips militants with a way of thinking and acting in the world. And I mean, the same thing with Christianity, right? Gets any doctrine that is successful becomes vulgarised mm. and simplified, right? Jesus died for our sins. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, it's the same sort of thing, I reckon, you know. It gets boiled down into a number of simple propositions that people yeah. can can handle and work with and do things in the world with and pull people towards them, towards their project. But I think, you know, he's so complex. And you see this in action. You see this in action in his more historical works, right, like 18th Brumaire, where very clearly he's not doing anything economically determinist. He knows that other things are important, that ideas are important, or politics are important. It's not just that these things are a reflex of the economic base. There's a lot of terms that often, I feel, get used interchangeably with communism and Marxism and socialism. And you were talking about Marxism conquering socialism between like those three in particular, but then also other similar terms. What are some distinctions mm. between like that you that you would use to differentiate socialism, Marxism and communism or in what ways are they similar and... Yeah, well, Mar Marx used communism to differentiate what he was doing from earlier writers, other earlier socialist writers. But I don't think there's a <clears throat> distinction. I use socialism as just a wide field, you know, including everything, including the anarchists, including <laughs> the Marxists, including the state socialists, the Fabians, everything. I mean, he... And then that, later on, people start talking about socialism as the first phase of the transition to communism. Communism would be, you know, the end of 
state end of private property, end of class, but in this transitional phase, socialism, you know, you still have a state and people are getting labour vouchers or whatever, but Marx doesn't make that distinction. Marxism, I guess, is just one brand, one intellectual formation within a wider, much wider socialist movement. That's how I use it. And, yeah, and for him it was just communism was to distinguish what he was doing from those earlier writers, particularly the utopian socialists. What he, They didn't call themselves that. He called them that, you know, people like Charles Fourier and Robert Owen and Henri Saint-Simon. Yeah, so he's trying to differentiate what he was doing. But I talk just widely about the socialist movement, which is incredibly plural. Same with Christianity, which is such a big, complex, contested field, like you said. Yeah, which I think is a, just shows how good something is, doesn't <laughs> it, when it's rich and there are lots of debates and lots of splinters. and But, you know, then it just can end up, you know, in so much sectarianism. And I guess one of the good things about the falling to bits of actual living, breathing Marxist organisations and a supposedly supposedly Marxist regimes is that you just don't see that sectarianism around. Like I did when I was a student, when you turn up to a meeting and all these different communist groups would get up and polemicise against each other. It's just like, oh my God, this is so pointless. There's like five people in each group who absolutely hate the five people in the other group. You know, the stuff that Monty Python satirise, you know. Um, and I think it we're kind of, we're freed from that sectarianism now, just because it, you know, what a, where is Marxism in the world? Mm. You know, it's not, it's not a regime anywhere. Marxist groups are tiny. It's now Marxism's this diffuse presence in our culture. You know, Peter Beilhart's someone I really love, says we're all Marxists now, you know, we just know that in capitalism, economy rules, right? Everything begins and ends with drives for profit and growth and competition. We know that, we're kind of opposed to that. So we're all Marxists. That actually leads us to our next question, which is, is capitalism really that bad? Um, do we actually need to move away from capitalism or can we reform it and regulate it and kind of try and deal with all the bad bits? Capitalism is, um, yeah, it's a complicated beastie, right? It is. It's driven by this endless dry dynamic of accumulation of wealth, growth, as everyone knows. You know, all anyone ever talks about is how the is GDP going to grow or contract. We don't know why that matters. And it just tends to gobble up everything else, say. Eh? just tends to eat everything in its path. When we think about value or worth in capitalist society, we think about economic value, economic worth, and that's kind of shitty mm. because what about human values, other sources of wealth and value? And I think that's still true, you know. That's that's real a real issue that um, so much of our lives are shaped by wealth, profit, competition. And this is what the socialist challenge was about. It was about getting away from that and that... Capitalism inevitably creates inequality, more or less in different phases, mm. right? You know, between the 30s and the 70s, you see a really huge equalisation, but that's in good part down to the pressure of the socialist movement, eh? Yeah. 
that that happens. So, I mean, definitely reforms have happened within capitalism, but they're always reversible, as we know. Yeah. In the post-70s period, you know, inequalities expanded very, very rapidly again. So it's this kind of always this continual, continual fight. I think that the dynamics of, of capitalism are kind of inhuman. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, personally, I think, some form of socialism would be a much better world. And it's really our only hope for a whole bunch of reasons, you know, saving the planet, dealing with inequality, rampant poverty, getting rid of war. I can't see any of how any of that could happen in a, in a world that's a world capitalist system. And, of course, you can make things better. There's all sorts of ways that you can. I've seen better things and worse things, better governments and worse governments, and those things are worth fighting for, for sure. I mean, I used to just believe nothing short of communism. I'm not going to even vote. Right? There's no point, just needs to be abolished. Because I honestly thought in my early 20s, look, this is such a fucking good idea, but socialism's just around the corner. All I need to do is speak to people I'll convince them and then they'll speak to them and we'll just have this bloodless revolution. It'll be great. It'll work. And as I got older, maybe just jaded or whatever, I was just like, that ain't going to happen. You know, that ain't going to happen. I wish it would, but it's not going to happen like that. So, you know, it actually matters. The sort of day-to-day stuff really, really matters and any reforms are good. Anything that takes the edge off those drives for profit growth competition if you can raise people out of poverty, if you can deal with horrible, environmentally destructive practices, that's great, of course. But I ultimately think, you know, capitalism has to go for everyone's sake. You know, I mean, I do think I, now it's while having children, I think, man, this world is really hard. Mm. You know, it's really hard. Like, what are they going to face if you think about our housing problems, again, environmental problems, major inequality. What's it going to be like for their kids? So you think capitalism as a system can't value people as, like, individuals? Because I feel like there's a lot of, particularly in New Zealand, but also just generally, politicians who really do care about people, or at least they say they do, Mm. but still, like, exist and perpetuate that capitalist system. There there are attempts at reform, like you say, but it still fundamentally feels like it always falls short. I think particularly because of the Soviet Union and the whole Soviet bloc, I mean, people just, you know, I've heard the same objection ever since I became a communist as, like, yeah, but it's, like, the least worst system, right? Because look at life there. That's that's brutal. Um, I can't remember who it was who said that the Soviet experiment would set socialism back a hundred years. Maybe it was Weber, and I think that's been that's been true because that's what people think of, right? Totalitarianism. It's um, almost a dirty word. Yeah. I mean, less so now, I think. I mean, obviously still in the States quite a bit, although democratic socialists of America have grown really considerably, eh? I think less so here, but it is a bit of a swear word, not a swear word like fascism. But it is, and I think that's why a lot of people just think, okay, what we've got is this, you know, we are kind of at the end of history. Fukuyama was right, like a liberal democracy in the political realm 
free market capitalism and the economic realm is not perfect, causes all sorts of problems. But what we need to do is try and reform it because the alternative, socialist alternative, just ends up Stalinism or whatever. Yeah, and I can see why people think that, but I mean, my view of communism is very different from that. I don't see those social orders as communist. I see them as state capitalist. And I think they're clearly not communist in the sense that that Marx imagined communism as the end of the state, the end of class, the end of the wage labour system of money, property. Yeah, we had a political science course I was doing. They very much had a similar sort of lens of like vanguard parties of like elite bourgeoisie who sort of adopted Marx's ideas and then taken that into their own revolution to just reinforce exactly the same thing that was there Mm. before. Yeah, yeah, and those thinkers that I'm most interested in, so the, I guess the far left, the anarcho-communists and the council communists and people like that, from very early on, they were saying, hey, this is, this is not socialism. And they were also saying one of the big reasons is because of these vanguard parties, because there's still this division between leaders and led between intellectuals or politicians and massive people. And socialism needs to be a movement of the immense majority themselves and, you know, who emancipate themselves and not emancipated by others. And you can find support for that, that reading in Marx's work. You know, it's, it's a movement by the majority of people, for the majority of people. not It's not a party that captures the state and then nationalises wealth and rules the people. It's something else. It's, it's, you know, he says at one point, socialism is as communism is the, the victory in the battle for democracy. So I think he's imagining some sort of directly democratic communism. Yeah. So for the Council Communists, it was the Workers' Councils or the Soviets that would be, you know, the alternative to a vanguard party state running things on behalf of the mass of people. Mm. So I think those currents are most interesting. Um, democracy is flawed, but I think moving towards <laughs> like a deliberative participatory democracy is a good ideal and should be something that we strive towards so that people are included. And maybe that's a road to communism or communism is is a part of that i think that is really really exciting because i think in the marxist tradition i mean there's this really strong critique of bourgeois democracy Mm -hmm. but i don't think that means that marxism is anti-democratic i think some marxists are you know they just see it as based on really flawed principles amadeo bordiga was was one of my favorites an italian Communist. He was first head of the Communist Party of Italy before Gramsci took over. And he was really resolutely anti-democratic. He's like, majority wants something. What does that mean? What's the benefit in that? I mean, he saw the kind of party as acting as a social brain on behalf of people. Where you don't want to submit to something like bourgeois democracy. But for the Council of Communists, democracy was good. It's just bourgeois democracy was not really democracy. It's like choosing people who are then going to decide for you rather than they wanted something much more direct, right, where people participated. And as you say, in in that participation, you get deliberation and people change, you know. So kind of would accord with those more deliberative 
democratic ideals which say, you know, democracy shouldn't just be a mirror of where people are right now, it should transform them by participating. But the problem with that, of course, is that kind of Oscar Wilde thing about the problem with socialism being takes too many Sundays, right? You know, that, oh my God, if we had to decide on every single little decision, all the people had to be involved, where would we ever get to, you know? We'd just be in meetings the whole of our lives. For the Council of Communists and others, they're, just, they're critical of representative democracy. Democracy had to be direct, you know? People actually had to participate and be informed. And I don't know how you how that doesn't turn into something incredibly bureaucratic. But, you know, it would solve many of the problems with representative democracy and just that you, you know, you have these vague political programs, you elect people based on these vague political ideals and programs, and then they go and do whatever the fuck they want. Yeah. And we just have such political illiteracy, right? People just don't don't know what any of these people stand for, yeah. just apart from these vague images, eh? Those sorts of things are things that I think, like, direct, deliberate democracy really helps cut through. I've been reading a really interesting book by a Dutch historian and political theorist, Rutger Bregman, which I've talked a lot about. It's called Humankind. He talks about sort of, like, history of humanity, and then he does a bit of discussion around deliberative democracy and particularly looking at budgeting processes in towns and cities in Brazil and the way that that sort of, like, changed how budgets are allocated and how people work together and how it's increased trust in the political institution but then also in other people as individuals and neighbours trust each other more and how it's meant that actually... For some reason, people who, when they're treated like what they say matters and that their involvement and their sort of contributions are important, then they do, it seems like at least, get involved and are better represented by those systems. And then that has better outcomes for them and their, over time, political literacy increases, which was really hopeful to read. And like, again, quite slow moving. And that was specifically looking at just budgeting which is just like one part of a whole system. But I found that quite hopeful. Yeah, and I think there are just a whole lot of examples through history, usually in periods of crisis, where people have actually gone and done things in this way, you know, where the Soviets or the workers' councils have actually taken over the whole of production and have managed to organise it and distribute things produced in short bursts. I used to spend more time thinking about how we would do it, you know, in a micro sort of way. And I think there are some really good answers there. But I've probably done less on that recently because it's like, gosh, you know, we're so far away mm. now, so much further away, I think, from socialism than we were when I was in my teens or 20s, mm. you know, actually just some plain old-fashioned post-war social democracy would seem revolutionary right now, you know, some taxation of wealthy people, some redistribution of wealth, some stronger regulation of companies. It just seems like that would be such a huge leap forward. 
You didn't convince enough people. And I did. <laughs> <laughs> Going in and handing out my little pen and just telling them how stupid they were for voting and that they needed communism right now. I mean, it's just unbelievably unrealistic. And I suppose I just didn't have any handle on the role of ideology. You know, I hadn't read any Gramsci or anything like that. I was just like, well, ideas are a reflection of material realities. People have a material interest in socialism. So, you know, their ideas will eventually catch up. They'll just catch up to this mater- their material realities and they'll become socialists. And, you know, and Marxists often put a lot of hope in catastrophe, right? Catastrophism. It's just like you just need a good economic collapse and people become communists. But, you know, as you, you know, in interwar Europe, when that happens... Uh, can go completely the other direction, eh? I heard that same argument in 2020 with the election in America where there were people who were socialists and communists encouraging people to vote for Trump so that there would be a collapse and then afterwards no yeah. one would do that ever again. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, definitely in the, as the Nazi party was on the rise, I think the Communist Party of Germany were quite hopeful. They were just thinking, well, you know, actually that'd be really better than the Social Democrats in power. It'd be good because if they'll see all the reality problems with Nazi ideology mm. and they'll be won over to the communists. So our main task is making sure we smash the Social Democrats because they're reformist and they're more dangerous because they're making people go, oh, reforms are possible. But, you know, the worse the better. That's the kind of yeah. ethos, eh? The worse the better because that will force people into into revolution and and this is in Marx as well I think it's in the Holy Family he says you know it's not a matter of what this or that proletarian or even the proletariat as a whole thinks it is a matter of what the proletariat is and what in accordance with its being it will be forced to do you know that is the very essence of the material existence of the working class will kind of force it into action and consciousness of a communist type and um it's taking a bloody long time, <laughs> which, you know, the, then inclines you to read someone like Gramsci more seriously, right, who was just going, oh, that didn't work out. I'm in a prison cell in, in fascist Italy. <laughs> oh, we thought we were, you know, we were on the way to revolution and everything was going well and they'd just had two years of this incredible factory council movement of people, you know, running production by themselves ignoring the trade union bureaucracy and the reformist socialists, and then you've suddenly got Mussolini in power and the decimation of the communist movement. It's a very strong movement, 40,000 people to everyone in prison or in exile. The whole of the prison notebooks is sort of reflecting on this, which is really interesting. I mean, I feel like we've already talked about this, the shift from capitalist to socialism and how to talk about a future which seems so impossible we were reflecting on how capitalism is such an all-encompassing structure and ideology and every part of our lives is pervaded with this. And how do we talk about the shift from capitalism to socialism when it seems so impossible? I guess it's just that kind of, you know, Gramscian battle in the cultural trenches, right? There's lots of signs that now is a better time for that, for socialist possibilities, for the spread of those ideas, 
than it was in the 90s, for instance, you know, where it just seemed like, oh, my goodness, it's just bare, just some tumbleweeds blowing through the dusty town. You know, there's nothing here. Everything's been smashed. Mm. Perry Anderson very famously said in his editorial in the year 2000 that neoliberalism was the most powerful ideology in world history. And it really felt like it, I think, at that time. And I don't think it feels like it in the same way now. And I think part of that is actually kind of bad because you've got kind of the rise of the far right as one signal of that shift of all of those reality problems where that storyline about the end of history, I just don't think it's as convincing now. So I think it's a much more hopeful time, but it's also quite threatening, I think. The young people I encountered much more politicised than they were when I first arrived here, you know. Whereas like, eh, what can you do? It's just what we've got. I think there's more of that attitude. Retreat from socialist ideas, anarchist ideas, feminist ideas, but that's completely different now. I would really love to be a Marxist, but my two main issues are the materialist atheist bent as a Christian and then also the violent revolution kind of stuff. Well, I mean, I think, like, with the atheism but eh, the quote everyone knows about Marx on religion eh, is the opium of the people. Any religion is like an ideology and it's a mystification that serves the interests of the ruling class. But the stuff that he's saying just before that doesn't sit well with that idea. Like, he mm. talks about religion as the the sigh of the oppressed creature and the heart of the heartless world or the soul of the soulless world. Just saying something quite different, isn't it, from Opium of the People. You know, I mentioned Roland Bohr's work, and he's written four or five volumes on Marxism and Christianity, just showing actually how seriously Marxist thinkers took Christianity, you know, that there was a lot from Engels on, because Engels had a religious background, and he wrote about the Anabaptists in a really admiring way, seeing them as precursors to communism. Mm. And so did a lot of, I mean, Ernst Bloch is another one who is very appreciative of Christianity. Gramsci has quite a lot to say about Christianity, not all of it bad. So I don't think it's necessary in any way. I did when I was younger. Yeah. I thought you couldn't be religious and Marxist. So I kind of, I mean, I always believed in God. I can't remember a time when I didn't from a kid, but I pretended that I didn't because I thought that I couldn't be a Marxist if I believed in God. You know, you had to critique it. But I just think that's fucking nonsense. So I just don't think there's any reason that these two things can't work together, even though, you know, I think Marx didn't. He quotes the gospel at times, but he doesn't seem to have had a big pull, you know. Mm. Maybe he was religiously yep. unmusical or something. You know, he didn't feel it. I don't know. That critique is that Marxism is just religious. It is actually a replacement yep. for yep. religion. It's got its apostates and its heretics and its apostles and it's a salvational story, yeah. which it is. I don't see that there's any incompatibility and Roland Bohr, and before Roland Bohr, Alastair McIntyre wrote a book, Marxism and Christianity, which really carefully tried to show that they're kind of compatible. And I think from the other side, hey, someone like Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg, you know, they're pretty much socialists, hey? Yeah. 
It's going, finding Christianity and Jesus. It's just socialism. And the materialism, well, because I, I just think that sort of crude Marxism, there's nothing other than the material. I mean, Gramsci already complicates that. And, and right through the Western Marxist tradition, you know, they're not, if not inverting it, they're giving the realm of ideas and sometimes even explicitly spirit. Panikuk, Anton Panikuk, what's the German word for pancake? Funical. Oh, yeah, I love that he was called Anton Pancake. But he was a really important council communist thinker. And he always said the biggest issue is one of spirit. And he was a man of science. He was an astronomer. But, you know, it wasn't for him a materialist question. It was a question of spirit. The failure of revolution was a failure of the spirit. But I don't think Marxism gives enough, you know, because it's, it's committed to transformation, societal transformation, and the transformation of people. But that's something that can't happen here and now. And that's, I think, why I was drawn to anarchism. Because first off, I got drawn to the Stalinists. And then I was like, oh, that's not very nice, is it? Okay, maybe Trotskyist. Oh, I don't know if I like that either. That's not very nice. It's all a bit violent and horrid. And then that anarchist critique of the Soviet Union was really important, but also the focus on new creation, I guess you'd call it in Christian terms, or, you know, that you need to transform. And I thought a lot of the micro-politics of Marxist groups look like untransformed, right? It's just bitter and horrible and sectarian and bludgeoning other people and humiliation. It just looked really hate, hateful and ugly to me. And I think that's, that's kind of a real missing bit. You know, I think I talked last time about, you know, we met about, I can't remember who it was who talked about Marxism's moral constipation. <laughs> I think it's very true. But, it, you know, it's about social transformation, but I don't know that it goes deep enough about transformation, transformation. Could you talk a little bit about eco-socialism? Socialism has a strong focus on workers owning the means of production, but it doesn't really address the ecological environmental crisis that our production creates, and we were wondering if there is a part of socialism that talks about that, that reshapes ideas of production and consumption and growth. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think one of the critiques of the Soviet Union and of all of those countries of the socialist bloc was that they were just as committed to the productivism of capitalism, right? Just conquest of nature, producing more but better. I mean, that was part of the rhetoric of it. Look at our industrialization compared to the West. We're doing it so fast. We can do it better. We can control nature. We can produce more things. Look at all our factories. I remember the first person who really taught me socialism, he was obsessed with Albania. And his big thing was, look at the bicycle production. Look how many bicycles they're producing. But it was just about this idea that socialism was even more efficient and productively dynamic than capitalism would be. It would be actually unleashing of production. But I think that there's a whole range of Marxist thinkers who were questioning that really early, like William Morris is one of them. He was a Marxist, definitely a socialist of some sort, and he was really appalled Mm -hmm. by industrialisation and life in the city, and he was really clear about how it's fucking up the water and blackening the trees... I think there's a whole tradition 
in anarchism in particular, there's that whole socialist anarchist tradition, which is very keenly aware of problems of industrialization. And even Marx talks about getting rid of the split between city and country, you know, just... So I think he's thinking about a kind of a reorganisation and not definitely thinking that we would be able to produce enough for everybody, but not necessarily thinking of socialism as just one big fucking factory. Marx's vision is, you know, his early stuff is clearly quite romantic. You know, the stuff from the German ideology, we're under communism, we'll be able to herd cattle in the morning and fish in the afternoon and write criticism in the evening. It's quite a rural, non-city life sort of image. So I think there is a green socialism, starting with Marx, and he does have things to say about the destruction of nature and capital. So I think there is that whole that whole tradition which is really critical of industrialization. Mm. It's saying actually we don't want to make everyone a proletarian in the factory. We want to get rid of proletarianization in this sort of alienated, awful world in the factory. Mm. And for Morris, that meant going back to craftspersonship, making things in a slower, more beautiful way mm. rather than mass producing fucking junk that ruins the world. You know, Murray Bookchin was an anarchist thinker who was trying to produce a, a kind of utopian vision of a more ecologically friendly anarchism, which would have to be more local rather than, than global. It's kind of municipal. And, and that Alma de, de Bordiga, who I spoke about, in the, in the 40s he was writing critiques of the effects of industrialization on nature. Really, really interesting. You go back to his stuff in the 40s and 50s and go, who else was talking about this? So I think there is that whole tradition. I mean, I'm not, that's not super my speciality, but there is a rich tradition. And just like Marxism doesn't mean enforced atheism, I don't think it means enforced industrialization and destruction of nature. I was thinking that though Marxism is not a super mainstream theory at the moment, Mika and I often, we've noticed how in our own conversations, we often do analyze the world through a Marxist lens. Particularly, I think sociology has trained me to analyze society through the perspective of class structures and the class struggle, which is really interesting. Absolutely. Class, structure, and sort of that divide is very applicable, it seems, to all different areas of study. Even in my studies of law, it seems like, particularly when it comes to criminal law and the criminal justice system, the way that some of these things are set up and who they're set up by, who's in power, mm. and which classes benefit the most from certain laws and criminal justice procedures. Seems like a massive area which Marxism can speak a lot into. Yeah, cause I just don't know how you could say anything sensible about the modern world without considering the importance of class and the dynamic of accumulation of wealth mm. and profit-making. I can't remember again who said this, but it's like, Vulgar Marxism explains like about 90% of what happens in the world. And, you know, maybe it's 
capitalism that is economically determinist rather than Marx. Mm. Well, you know, he's establishing this new mode of thought, this new system of thought. But you, know, you look around the world and it's like, yeah, class, mm. profit-making, pretty fucking important, right? Can you tell us about your your research into reactionary far-right politics? What are the sort of stuff you're looking into and what patterns have you noticed? Um, I suppose the alt-right kind of really appeared and became quite visible a couple of years before 2016. So it's just because I'm interested in ideology and ideas and social theory, I was like, what is this? What does it mean? Uh, so I've written a few pieces on it and I'm kind of writing something on it now just trying to think, well, what is it? What is it? Because there's so much being produced now, you know, and they have various labels for it far right you know, hard right, populist right. But what is it that holds it together? What does it mean? It kind of feels like it's taken a lot of people by surprise. You know, there's a lot of liberal thinkers that we mentioned. Fukuyama's just written a book going, oh, my God, liberalism's under threat now. Jeez, boy. Mm. And that's another thing I noticed, another research project I did looking at the kind of liberal institutions and liberal intellectuals were saying about our time after the global financial crisis and there's this real terror around gosh we might be in a new 1930s a new interwar period where you have the rise of the far left and the rise of the far right so I was really interested in this stuff and spent kind of a year or more just reading all this horrible stuff and thinking about it and I suppose I wanted to read it because it's so depressing it was making me Upset, and I had a student who was doing an MA thesis on it, and it was obviously really disturbing, really ruining his life. But so I wanted to find a more hopeful way, I suppose, or you know, because I think it's really easy, and it happens in the liberal mainstream media to write, say, populism offers, and you know, Donald Trump supporters offers white trash, basically a type of class hatred. It's like stupid hillbillies and barely employed stupid white men in the rust belt or whatever who are voting for him. So I just wanted to, yeah, I wanted to do more focus on the kind of utopian dimension of that far right. And so, and then luckily, you know, Ernst Bloch wrote a book in the 1930s called The Heritage of Our Times where he was really interested in the you know, the utopianism of fascism, that it wasn't just hatred and fear and ugliness, although there was plenty of hatred and fear and ugliness, but there were also these genuine, authentic hopes for something else. It was a kind of a critique of the present. And so I wanted, you know, it was pretty hard because it was just depressing, but I, I just wanted to think in those terms of those utopian images, those more hopeful dimensions of it and as it and this stuff as some sort of authentic response to real issues rather than just being awful people you know this is a bit of an obscure object eh? this is quite new like what is this thing and so I was really interested in going back to those early socialist encounters with fascism because fascism was new it was born in 1919 and what did they make of it what did they think it was? How did they explain it? You know, I was interested in that. Partly because I'm really interested in what do we make of 
this now, you know, when we have things like the Parliament protest, which is obviously animated by a whole lot of things, but partly by that stuff, you know, those tropes that you find in there, you know, so similar to that kind of far-right stuff, you know, you could see QAnon stuff and stuff about globalist elites, and even there was a bit of anti-Semitic stuff down there, and, you know, Jucinder and stuff like that, and it's just, it's weird, it's a real weird soup, but I mean, fascism was as well. Like, it was such a complex beast at the beginning. And so I was just like, how did the early socialists try and visualise this? What did they make of this? You know, because you had, you obviously had ultra-nationalist stuff. You had anti-Semitic stuff. You had back-to-nature stuff. Mm. We hate the cities, partly because that's where the Jews live, you know. But it was, and there was sort of semi-socialist stuff. A lot of syndicalists, anarcho-syndicalists, got drawn into fascism. So it had that same just this weird, complex, discrepant ecosystem feel to the far right today. So I thought, oh, great chance to not have to read this shit that people are pumping out now. Go back and think about how people were sort of trying to visualise that then, try and get a bead on what was happening. Um, but I owe that all to Ernst Block. It's a man. Every conversation comes back to Ernst Block. I love Ernst Block. Ernst Block and Antonio Gramsci, you know, like they just, those are my desert island reads. What do you think is your most controversial opinion? If you were in a room with other people from your field, what is something that you would likely disagree with them about? I mean, maybe it would be that I'm still unreconstructed communist. I mean, um, that probably is the thing most people would find regrettable about my opinions or or just a bit unfathomable or go, oh, I don't know, you know, you're just sort of a hopelessly out of touch university person still mm. believing in communism. But, you know, I do. I, I still hold to the, came to a kind of council communist position fairly early or an anarcho-communist position fairly early. I still 100% think that would be the best social order you could have. And I think that would just be amazing. I mm. think it would be amazing. I think it would be a world that would be just so hospitable to people. You know, everyone could thrive in a world like that. Yeah, so I still really firmly, despite my feeling of, oh God, I don't know how you'd get there, mm. but I still think you know, still fully a council communist. And I think that would, yeah, I'm sure many of my friends or colleagues would find that unbelievably naive. I don't know if they'd find it controversial. Mm. I think they'd maybe just find it a little sad or, or weird or something that I still, you know, still that would be my biggest hope. What do you disagree with Marx about? And do you think that Marxism is enough in and of itself? I don't think it's enough in and of itself. And I think that was the kind of thing for me. You know, I'm a baby Christian in many ways, because even though I've always believed in in God, you know, my Mm. actually encountering Christianity, because Christianity for me in the 80s, because I was into punk and everything, Christianity meant the culture wars. It meant the moral majority I, I couldn't sort of see outside of, you know, evangelical 
right-wing Christianity in the States and the people I knew who were Christian in my family, they were kind of of that type. And so I had, you know, I knew all about the riches of Marxism, but not about the riches of Christianity. So I was a, a God lover, but, you know, didn't know enough about that, about Christianity. And I thought, what's lacking in Marxism is present in Christianity. I mean, you know, I said that Christianity is world transforming, but a self transforming dimension, which is so crucial. And, and I don't think Marxism does that very well, as is evidenced by the behaviour of Marxist groups very often and, and supposed socialists and even anarchists and stuff who are, you know, very untransformed, very much mm. off this world in the worst possible way. Uh, and, yeah, you know, moral, that moral constipation of Marxism, I mm. think, is a real... And, and the disdain of Marxists for, you know, a spiritual realm, mm. you know, for a realm other than, you know, vulgar materialism. I mean, not every Marxist thinks that, of course, but, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, so I think that's what's missing from Marxism, and it needs to be... Marxism isn't a, a total way all in itself. As Gre that's what Gramsci hoped, and that's what his interest in... Catholicism in Italy was, you know, it's this total vision of life. It's this total thing that people live, and that's what socialism needs to be. But if it is just materialist and, and class-oriented and change after the revolution and stuff, then that's never going to be a total, a total thing. And the only thing left that does have that, that total way of life are the re religions, aren't they? Mm. You know, kind of that have that. And that's why I think it's very lucky if you're a young person growing up in that. I really wish that I'd had that available to me, that total, totalitarian. But the Gramsci is this totalitarian in a neutral way. But just a, a, every part of life, it touches on everything. And I think that's what you need for, for real transformation, eh, rather than you know, Marxist Vanguard Party or a group or whatever, you know, you really do need that. So I think that's missing in Marxism, less missing in anarchism, I think, because there has been that whole current of living the revolution, that you create a new type of life within the shell of the old. It's much more got that, that thing, but then very often anarchists, uh, militant atheists, but not always. There's a, you know, there's a New Zealand... Atticus Christian yeah. network out there, you know. Yeah. But I think it's anarchism has been much more open to that kind of more encompassing kind of way of seeing things in Marxism. We were wondering what is something or what are some things that give you um, hope for the future and what are some of the times where you've struggled with hope and then how have you worked through that? Yeah, I mean, I do struggle with hope all the time. You know, when stupid shit happens, stupid, awful, ugly, horrible shit mm. happens, it just makes me feel so pessimistic and defeated and deflated. Mm. You know, Bloch's thing about the necessity of a militant optimism, I think it's really good is to always see that utopian, that utopian dimension, even in the worst stuff. 
you know, that, that that's still people always, we're hoping animals, you know. We are hoping animals, and that's that's really important. And I think what makes me optimistic, actually, is I know this sounds like Whitney Houston. I believe the children are our future. But, no, you know, like young people are really fucking onto it. Like, <laughs> like they really are. This, this, the, the students that I've seen, I talk about that period of the rise of the far right, but in that same period... Mm. The students that I'm encountering, that's one of the great things about the job, is just, they're just amazing. Mm. You know, they're much more politically engaged. They're fucking nice to each other. <laughs> they're so much nicer to each other <laughs> than I was as a teenager or what I was in my early 20s. You know, that that really matters. Um, so that is, that's a real reason to be, to be hopeful because I, I am, Sure. Well, again, this just sounds like Whitney Houston, doesn't it? But I am sure that socialism, maybe a kind of new Christian socialism, <laughs> will, will be formed by you lot, you know, that something will happen. I am actually optimistic. Communism will win in the end. Um, Christian communism <laughs> will win. That's the, the thing. But, yeah, you can feel really pessimistic about all the terrible stuff mm. going on. But then when you actually, you know, encounter the young people that I'm always encountering. It's mm. like, well, the heaps better than I was and that anyone I knew was, so that's got to be good, right? Mm. You know, they're really onto it about social justice, about how they treat each other, about gender and sexuality politics, about mm. the question of the environment. They're really worried about issues of inequality like housing, the accumulation of wealth mm. on the one end and poverty on the other. And that's so different from 20 years ago. And it's so different from when I was young, where it was just like, oh my God, this neoliberal steamroller. Like I'm distributing pamphlets why you're stupid for voting. But this is getting nowhere and everyone thinks it's hopeless and we actually have reached the end of history. I think there was, you know, even though everyone had a real crack at Francis Fukuyama, everyone on the left was, well, what an ideologist. Um, what an idiot. I think everyone kind of thought he's actually right, isn't he? Because there's no dissent anywhere and there's no prospect, there's no force that doesn't look neoliberal of some sort. And I think it's very, very different now. But I also think, you know, if you're just feeling completely pessimistic and miserable, you're, you're not seeing things right. You're making a mistake of some sort. You're getting something wrong. And I think, you know, Frederick Jameson is another good person for me from within academia. You know, talking about, obviously, there's a whole lot of Christian material which inclines you away from despair and towards hope. As Paul says, hope does not disappoint. But, you know, from the more academic Marxist side, Frederick Jameson's insistence that, you know, when you're looking at anything, you've, you're bringing this negative hermeneutic, this critical hermeneutic that shows how you know, how every product of civilization is built on dog shit or whatever. You know, you can kind of see all the all the suffering and the, the ruin, but you bring to it a positive hermeneutic as well, kind of reading. You know, that is an expression of hope or we see something, something socialist, some socialist possibility in this as well. And I just think that's, a, that's absolutely essential. I just don't know how... Oh, God, I don't know, if you're a young person without hope or any person without hope, I mean, 
oh, it's just necessary, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, where would you be? Yeah. And I think that's the... I think that's one of the real problems, and I think you see that in the far right, eh? The the there's so many invitations to nihilism today, you know, probably particularly for young people because it is materially different for you lot. You know, like I was still when I was your age, I still was in a period where the remnants of the Keynesian welfare state and socialist, some sort of socialist ethos still had quite a presence, you know, it was still sedimented, it was still there. So I never doubted for a moment that I would find some job mm. that I was happy with, that I would get myself a house, mm. that I would come out of my <laughs> education not owing anyone any anything. You know, like I, I obviously wanted to destroy capitalism and I thought we needed a better way of life, but I, I still had all of these assumptions that I could make quite reasonably. And I don't think that's the case for young people today. So there are all these invitations to despair. So that's, yeah, that's my worry for my kids and for any young person is just, you know, this just kind of cynicism, sterile irony, constant irony about everything. Yeah, caustic scepticism about everything. Yeah, that's just worrying. I mean, I don't know what to say. I'm in a different position, eh, you know? Um, but I that scares me and it worries me. It's huge, I think, for young people and, and sort of particularly, I think, staring issues like huge existential issues like mm. climate change mm. right in the face. And that's why I think you see these huge school strikes for climate because there's still people that are young and have hope and yeah. want to do things. But I think, tragically, there's also a lot of young people who have that despairing cynicism about climate. Yeah, I think that's the people there. I mean, they can get pulled all sorts of directions, you know, self-destruction or whatever. But, you know, I think that partly, because fascism, neo-fascism is a philosophy of despair. That's, that's a lot of it. Yeah, there are utopian elements there, but a mm. lot of it is an expression of despair. It's ultimately pessimistic even if it kind of puts its hopes supposedly in this heroic militant elite that it's a new hierarchy or whatever but I think ultimately it's just it's nihilistic it's despairing yeah that worries me so yeah I mean that's what I, I think there's a, that double-sided thing eh, with young folk today is on the one hand you know there's so many causes for hope often just in the way they treat themselves and their attention their attention mm. to issues that I didn't know about for all of my Marxism that I wasn't aware of. So so much hope there, but on the other hand, you know, you actually your material conditions are pretty trying compared to to my reasonable expectations in the nineteen eighties about what my life would look like. I mean it was yeah, of course I'll do as well as my parents or better. You know, I can be a Marxist. I don't have to be a slave to the boss, establish a little bookshop and I'll buy myself a nice little modest house, that's fine. I can totally, of course, I'll attain to a, like a petty bourgeois yeah. kind of style of life. That's easily graspable. I knew people who did it. Um, whoa, and that, that kind of bohemian life, that doesn't look doable. Or it looks harder. How does um, that sort of militant optimism inform 
your political engagement now? Do you do you still abstain from voting, or are you back? I don't. I I stopped my anarchist vote strike. <laughs> Not the last election, the election before, it was just like, actually, this matters. It might not make any difference for a middle-class person like me, whether it's John Key or Jacinda Ardern, but it fucking matters for a whole bunch of people, even if they raise the benefit by $20. This is just, you know, I can live my catastrophist dreams about, yeah, John Key, he'll just make it worse and then everyone will become socialist. But this is just stupid, you know, like it would be better. And I think even though, you know, she's been such a letdown, you know, even the form of it, even that, you know, that fucking, you know, niceness, that's all That's all that's happening really in the Labour Party, it seems to me, is be a bit nice. Still, it's better than being a bit of a fuckwit, isn't it? <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I just feel like I've, you know, I mean, politically, I think probably I don't do a whole lot now other than, you know, I think, I think, Teaching is, you know, it's always political. You know, I don't, I, I'd like to think I don't force my Marxism on my students, but I think that, like, talking about some of the stuff that we talk about in sociology does potentially make, help people become more autonomous, right? To be able to critically reflect on themselves and their institutions. Mm. So, I mean, I think that that is political in a certain way, you know, that, um, but in a, you know, a very modest way. What other practices do you hold to that is anti-capitalist and anti-establishment beyond not voting and beyond the way that you teach? Are there other things that inform, how does this inform your life? Well, I mean, I'd like to think that that, but also my... Christianity informs how I behave towards people and that that really matters mm. as well. You know, maybe my kids wouldn't say that. I kept yelling at them the other day, <laughs> cleaning their room or whatever. But, I mean, you know, it does, I, I think that that does matter a lot. I'm, I'm not a very consumerist person. My girlfriend from when I was a teenager, I met her up here not that long ago. So we were together in the 80s and she opened the door and she said, oh, my God, you're wearing exactly the same <laughs> clothes you were wearing in 1988. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I don't think of myself as too consumerist, but, you know, I, I think I have actually, unfortunately, my self-criticism would be that I have abandoned a lot of my bohemianism in my 20s, you know. I partially own a house and I... I mean, that's the thing, you know, like actually a kind of a petty bourgeois standard of life. I can't remember the Brazilian thinker, he was one of Obama's teachers, Roberto Anga, said actually, like, Marx is constantly having a go at the petty bourgeoisie, but isn't that kind of what people want? Like a modicum of independence and comfort and respect, you know? That's not a bad thing, being independent and having enough. Yeah, so I, I think probably not enough. I would, I you know, I think this is one of the things that, you know, my encounter over the last decade, a proper deeper encounter like I've had with Marx since I was a teenager with Christianity, is hopefully, you know, you know, but baby Christian, I'm learning, I'm learning, and that hopefully is transforming me. And I think that transformation would all be in line with my socialist values. I can't see the incompatibilities between that. Becoming a better 
Christian, a better follower of Jesus, that would could only make me a better socialist. Mm. Well, do you get the same thing that you probably do, eh, with Christianity as a kind of a turn-off word for when you encounter young people in the mm. same way that going, on oh, the Marxist or I'm a socialist might yeah. be a real yeah. turn-off word. Yeah. For, you know, it certainly was for me as a young mm. person, you know, which is why I could go on secretly praying every day and believing in God. But I wasn't going to admit. Definitely. I think there's, like, a lot of associations with sort of, like, what people see as the big Christian movement, uh, particularly, I hate to take shots at America, <laughs> and evangelical American sort of, that like, really... Bible Belt conservative mm. brand of Christianity that people like, particularly sort of I think general generally like moderate people our age care about issues like feminism mm. or like gay marriage and things yeah, like that right. and then they see all of these things opposed by yeah. people who call themselves Christian and that's just the only association. There's a lot of assumptions yeah. attached to the word Christian. Yeah, yeah I don't yeah. I don't generally like labeling myself, but Christian <laughs> I would do that. But yeah. That's true. For for friends who I've kind of come out to and stuff, because it has been a real a bit of a coming out for me over the last decade or whatever, and then I instantly have to go through this mm. series of explanations mm. about, yeah. because I think their assumption is immediately, mm. all right, so you believe all of this fucking odious stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I do think that gives a real good opportunity for like some really deep, good conversations with friends, mm. which I've managed yeah. to have, and that's been really, really awesome. Yeah, as soon as you explain it, maybe it's the same with, you know, like saying you're socialist. Well, you know, you don't agree, you know, with socialism. What is the socialism you don't agree with? What do you, mm. What comes to your mind? Well, fuck, that's not what I'm thinking about yep. when I'm thinking about socialism. Yep. Stalin and marching in uniforms and a society that's just a factory and... Okay, our final question is what books are you reading at the moment and what books slash podcasts (laughs) would you recommend to us that have been formational to you throughout your life? Oh, books. Well, I mean, obviously, The Encounter for me with Marx, I loved, I loved reading Marx. I mean, I I do, I don't know, I don't know if you... Young person today would pick up Marx and go, "Oh, that blew my mind." I don't know if it would have that effect. It did for me, but also I was reading good Marxist thinkers. I mean, I love Frederick Jameson. I love Ernst Bloch. You know, it's the principle of hope's insane. It's an insane book. I can't believe it was written. But if you don't feel you have to begin at the beginning of volume one and work your way through to volume three, and you just dip, dip in and out, you know that's Really, that's really great. That's just so interesting. Perry Anderson, Eric Hobsbawm, these are thinkers I like reading in the Marxist mm. tradition. You know, Terry Eagleton's Why Marx Was Right is, is really good for people who, who want something like that. Just trying to think, what were the what were the books that really, really moved me? I mean, Perry Anderson's Considerations on Western Marxism, but it's such a weird book. I don't know... I don't know why I find that one something that I go back to again and again and again and again. I love Marcus Borg's stuff on Jesus and Christianity. I know he's kind of, he's quite secular, Marcus Borg, really. He's probably too secular for me now. But I really love, 
I really love that voice of the writing. It's really nice. Really like Brian Zand. Have either of you guys read Brian Zand? He's an American evangelical, I guess. And he's just so great. I just think he's so, so good. So anything, anything by him. Not his older stuff, because he used to be a bad sort of evangelical, but he he came right, and he's he's really great. Brad Jerzak, I really like. Podcasts? There's a kind of Christian socialist one, The Magnificat. That's really good. Yes, that one's really good. That's really good. I always I always listen to The Dig. Why always check out what's on The Dig. That's a Jacobin magazine podcast. I mean, sort of the socialist press was really important for me as a young person, but I've, I've lost touch with that stuff. Socialist standard and socialist viewpoint, that was, that was really fantastic. I bet there's all sorts of great online ones. New Left Review, yeah. for me, is always every issue of New Left Review I'll devour. Counter Futures is pretty good, I've heard. Counter Futures is, is very, very good. <laughs> Are you reading anything interesting at the moment? Uh, I'm just finishing off Brian Zan's latest one, When Everything's on Fire. It's this sort of response to to Christian deconstruction. It's his attempt to win young people who are going through deconstruction back to the faith. I think he's great. I, just, I really like him a lot. I just read David Bentley Hart's book on tradition, okay. Tradition and Apocalypse. It's hard to follow sometimes, but that, that one's pretty good. Yeah, that's what I'm reading at the moment, those two. And, oh, Enzo Traverso, I really love from the Marxist tradition. He's really cool. Uh, Fire and Blood, about the European Civil War, 1914 to 1945. Um, and just reading a book of his on revolution. He's really lovely. Warm, warm Marxism. That was, what was one of Bloch's... Terms. There's a cold stream of Marxism yeah. and a warm stream of Marxism, and he's totally an inheritor of that mm. warm stream of Marxism, a sort of culturalist Marxism. It's so nice. Yeah. Awesome. It is 2.53. Oh. Probably need to oh, sorry for whittering on. Oh, it was awesome. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank, Thank you so much. much. Well, it's been just a pleasure talking to you too, as joy. it was last time. Particularly if you're so busy at the moment, it feels like a, a real gift that you're here. Well, it's a real gift for me, honestly, because it's. Um, I just came in this morning feeling quite stressed out by all I had to do, and actually, this has been actually just really nice. Reminds me about what's so exciting about being here and getting to think about this kind of thing, and that's actually part of your job. <laughs> <laughs>